I was tempted a couple of weeks ago, just briefly, to end my sermon on the first half of Daniel chapter 9 with a really good cliffhanger. But I resisted the temptation because I, when we come to the end of a sermon, I want you to be ready to respond to God in worship because of what you've just heard and not thinking about what the next sermon might be about. But I was tempted because in the middle of chapter 9, where we left off, something really dramatic happens. Daniel, in the first half of chapter 9, is praying to God because he's read the prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah said that God had said there were going to be 70 years where um, Babylon was going to be ascendant, so to speak, that uh, this exile that Judah had been brought into by the Babylonians, where their, their people were taken into exile, their temple was destroyed, that that was going to last 70 years. And Daniel was a part of uh, one of the early groups to be brought into exile. And so he's been in Babylon almost 70 years. And so he reads that Jeremiah said it's going to last 70 years. And Daniel realizes, okay, the time is almost up, but, but we're not turning back to the Lord like we need to. We're not confessing our sin like we need to. And so he says, I, I, I'm going to do it. I, I'm going to pray. I'm going to confess our sin. I'm going to ask the Lord to have mercy upon us. And so he pours out his heart in prayer based upon what he has read in the scriptures. But what happens next is surprising to me. And even though Daniel had experienced some exceptional things, I imagine it must have been surprising for Daniel as well. And the reason why I think it must have been surprising to him, and why it certainly surprises me, is because Daniel, after praying this prayer, he receives a swift answer, literally, the text says that Gabriel comes in swift flight to Daniel, bringing him an answer to his prayer. But the answer to his prayer is, even this 70 years is not the end of the story. There's going to be another 70, actually another 77s, that God has prepared, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what that's going to be about. That's that's the message that Gabriel brings to Daniel. So it begins in verse 20 with this unexpected answer, right? He says, while I was speaking in praying, in verse 20, and then again in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer. So this is... He's not even finished praying yet, and here comes Gabriel with the answer to his prayer. Now, you know, some of us have seen some dramatic answers to prayer in our lifetime, but most of them don't happen before we finish praying, right? A few minutes after, maybe, would be pretty dramatic for us. Uh, But Daniel gets the answer before he's even stopped praying, and he says, uh, Gabriel, is the man Gabriel... By the way, Gabriel is probably called a man here because that's how angels sometimes appear in the Bible, in the form of a man. He's not actually a human being. He's an angel. We know that from the rest of Scripture, right? But he's called a man here. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So here comes Gabriel just, you know, zooming in, as it were, to where Daniel is to bring him word from God. He says in verse 22, He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. So, Daniel, I've come to reveal something to you. 
come to help you understand something. In verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So as soon as you started praying, God sent a message, right? It's implied, understood here, that the word being sent out is a word that's coming from God. And he says, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Daniel, God loves you, and God wants you to know what's going to happen next. And so he sent me with an urgent message to bring to you, to help you understand what's going to take place. So he says, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, that's the easiest part of the whole thing. From this point forward, it gets a lot more difficult, right? But it's extremely fascinating at the same time. So here's what he says, verse 24. This is Gabriel reporting to Daniel this vision, this word from God. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, I say this is difficult, and it's, and it's not just me, right? And if you've ever been in a study of Daniel before, you, you're probably familiar with how difficult this part of Daniel can become. One, pe- one teacher, a uh, Bible teacher, puts it this way. He says, for many readers, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is the most challenging section of the book and one of the most difficult in the Bible, And he says, according to another scholar who he's quoting, reading commentaries on the last four verses of Daniel 9 is akin to entering a bewildering maze. And I can vouch for the truth of that. One commentary I was looking at lists eight different views of this passage. Now, that's not a maze that I was able to to make it all the way through, right? There's a lot of things that people say about this passage, a lot more than you can study in a couple of weeks, right? Maybe more than you could study in a couple of months. But we want to do our best, right, to try to understand as much of it as we can. So I'm not going to try to take you through the maze, right? But I'm going to try to say, here's what I think is going on in these verses. And at times I'm going to say, there are you know, a handful of views about this that are worth considering, right? So just know that just about anything I explain from this passage, there's probably somebody who says, well, actually, I think it's this, right? There's no consensus, right, about all of this. Maybe about some of it, but certainly not about all of it. So just bear that in mind. But I I don't want to say with every, I don't want to go through, you know, every possible point. I mean, that's not any fun. I didn't want to do that (laughs) studying, trying to list all the views and, if I brought that all out to you, you guys would be bored, right? And I would be bored, and so we don't want to do that. But we're going to go through and, and, and try to see as best we can like what, what is going on in these passages, right? So, first of all, he says 70 weeks, or you might have a note in your Bible like I do that says 70 sevens. Okay, so Daniel has just been praying about the 70 years of the exile, 70 years of the desolation for Jerusalem, and Gabriel comes in and says, okay, you've been thinking about this 70 years, but I'm here to tell you about 70 more sevens, or 70 weeks. What is all that about? Well, 
Uh, most people say, I think, that the 77s or the 70 weeks are 70 weeks of years. 70 sets of 7 years, which if you get out your calculator, if you're not great at math off the top of your head, like sometimes I'm not, right? That's 490 years. Now, that could be a literal period of time of 490 years, or it could be a symbolic period of time because 70 times 7, you got all those 7s. I mean, 7 is a significant number in the, in the Bible, and that repetition of 7, that could indicate some kind of symbolism. Right? One uh, writer on Daniel... Uh, points to something that I, I think is very uh, insightful and helpful for thinking about what might be going on here. Why a period of 77s? And he says this, he says, Significant for Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is the simple fact that the 70 years of Daniel 9, 24 amounts to a tenfold jubilee of 490 years. And he's not the only one coming up with that. He, He's getting that from somebody else too. But then he says, The symbolic value of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9.24 seems to derive from the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. Okay, so if you go back and look at Leviticus 25, what's going on is there are these periods of uh, sabbatical years, right? So every seven years, the people are supposed to let the land rest, right, in the Old Testament. So there's a sabbatical year, a se- there's you know, seven days, the seventh day is the Sabbath, the seventh year is a sabbatical year, and then every seven sets of seven years, that's 49 years, and then the 50th year is a jubilee. We even use that language, right, for like a jubilee uh, church anniversary or a jubilee wedding anniversary. So what he's saying is, if you look at this based on the background of Leviticus 25, then 490 years is 10 jubilees, right? 10 sets of seven sevens. So it could be sort of like the ultimate, this is what he's suggesting, I think. It could be sort of like the ultimate jubilee, the ultimate year of rest, of freedom, of deliverance. So it could have some really serious, weighty, symbolic value. It could be a literal 490 years, or it could be both. There's no reason why it has to be one or the other. So uh, these 77s are divided up into 1-7, 62-7s, and then 1-7 uh, at the end. So 7-7, seven, 62-7s, seven, and then 1-7. A group of 49 years, 434 years, and then 7 years. That's how the rest of the thing gets broken out. It's also significant that this vision is about Jerusalem. I mean, th- think about this. Daniel is a Jew. He's concerned about the fate of Jerusalem. He's been taken from Judah into exile. He's been there for decades. And he's received um, you know, visions, interpreted dreams, and so on. But most of it has revolved around major world empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And all that's related to Israel, but there's not been one yet that's been mainly about Israel. This one is. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. This is about what's going to happen to to the Jews and to Jerusalem. And then he says, here's what this 77 is about. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. 
Right, so this 77s, this 490 years, what God is going to be up to, so to speak, in that period of time is dealing with sin in various ways. It sounds like part of it is going to be bringing an end to Israel's sin against God, right? That's what Daniel's just been confessing. We have rebelled against you. We've sinned. We've done wickedly. That's why we're in exile. That's why Jerusalem is, has been destroyed and overrun and why the, why the temple has been uh, demolished and so on, right? So it's, he's going to put an end to sin, finish transgression, and to atone for iniquity. So the sin is going to be not just brought to an end, but covered and forgiven. This, I think, is very clearly pointing to the time when the Messiah will come, when Jesus himself will come, and he will offer the one true, once for all, sacrifice for sin. He's going to put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's not enough simply for our sins to be wiped out. We also need to be righteous. right? And Daniel has seen in an earlier vision about the, the coming of the kingdom of God, right? the mountain, the rock that grows into a mountain. And he may be thinking of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 7, when he talked about the coming of the Messiah, the child that will be born and will sit on David's throne, and he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This everlasting righteousness that comes with the coming of the kingdom of God and with God's king, the Messiah, Jesus. So he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness and, he says, to seal both vision and profit. That, I think, means to put sort of like, you know, a stamp on it, a seal on it to say, this is authentic, this is verified, this is true. In other words, these prophecies from the Old Testament that God's people are waiting to see fulfilled, when this 490 years takes place... Those things are all going to be sealed. They're going to be fulfilled. They're going to be seen to be authentic, valid, true. And he says to anoint a most holy place. Or again, you might have a a note like I do that says it could be a most holy one. So this could refer to the anointing of the temple. Or it could refer to the anointing of Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the temple, of the tabernacle. The purpose of the tabernacle was to be God's dwelling place in the midst of his people. John tells us in John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. To be anointed, right? That's what the word Messiah and the word Christ both mean. It's an anointed one. So it could be talking about Jesus, could be talking about the temple. Okay, so that's verse 24, right? That's what the vision is about. It's going to deal with sin, establish righteousness, validate the prophecies, and anoint the temple or perhaps even the Messiah. Then he says, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, so 
now he's talking about how these groups of weeks relate to one another and what's going to happen in each one. Alright, so uh, he mentions from, in verse 25, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, right? There's going to be this period of time. Now, even that is not easy for people to nail down. What's he referring to? You might say, oh, that's really easy. It's talking about when uh, in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus the Persian is now on the throne and he says to the people of Judah, go home if you want to and rebuild the temple if you want to. That could be what he's talking about, but there are at least three primary points in time that this could be referring to, right? So if you look at the ESV study Bible, which was one of my kind of go-tos during all this, because it puts things as succinctly as it can and gives you a lot of different perspectives, the ESV study Bible gives three suggestions about what point he could be talking about. It could refer to the decree of Cyrus we just mentioned in Ezra 1. That happened in 538, Right, which is about 70 years after Daniel was taken into exile in 605. Okay? Or it could refer to the decree of Artaxerxes, which is in Ezra chapter 7, and that happened much later in 458. Or the third option that they mention is when Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah permission to go rebuild the wall in 445. And that's in Nehemiah chapter 2. And all these have different points. If you measure you know, the, the seven sevens plus the 62 sevens, and you put that together, those are going to land you in different places. The last two options are going to land you somewhere during the life and ministry of Christ or around the death of Christ, depending on how you count them. Right? And so it's very difficult even to nail down which one of those moments Gabriel is referring to in this vision, right? But almost certainly, this is leading us up to the time when the Messiah is going to come, right? The time when uh, Jesus is going to come, okay? Um, now, the, ES, the wording of the ESV here, um, I think, is a little uh, confusing, and so I follow the, the NASB translation on this part because I think it makes the relationship between these uh, weeks a little bit clearer. It says... So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. The ESV makes it sound like the Messiah comes after the seven weeks and then is cut off after the 62 weeks. But I think the 62 and the seven are supposed to go together. That's the way the NASB translates it, and that's the way that makes the most sense, I think. Okay, so... Seven weeks plus 62 weeks, right, that comes to, um, I think, about 434 years, um, or plus 49 years, right, I think. And so that gets you to, again, around the time of Jesus. And it says, okay, so we've got Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, the temple's going to be rebuilt, the wall's going to be rebuilt, the city's going to be rebuilt, all those things, but in a troubled time. If you read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, it was a troubled time. And like we talked about before, even the time between that and then the, the coming of Christ was a troubled time. When we looked at you know, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, and what he did to the Jews and all that, that was in between those things. 
So it was certainly a troubled time. And then verse 26 says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Now that, I think, is the easiest part of this to interpret. That this has to be talking about Jesus the Messiah. He's the anointed one, and we know he was cut off. Isaiah 53, 8 prophesied in advance about this when it said, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's the same passage where it says he was you know, bruised for our iniquities and crushed for our transgressions. The, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come and be cut off and have nothing. And as Christians, right, it's not hard for us to put that together with what he said earlier about putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, and bringing in everlasting righteousness. We know that that happens through the coming of Christ, through the coming of the Messiah. But then it gets really tricky again. It says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Now, the temple, while Daniel is receiving this vision, right? the temple has been destroyed many years ago. Right? But it's going to be rebuilt not too long from now. But now, Daniel's being told in this vision, it's going to be destroyed once again, right? They shall, the, uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So it's going to happen another time. Now, how this is going to happen is difficult to pin down. When it's going to happen, I don't think it's, it's terribly difficult, but how it's going to happen is difficult because... Uh, there are at least a couple of options here about how this works, right? One, uh, one teacher says this. He, he says, after the redemptive work of Jesus, after Jesus is cut off, like he's just been talking about, after his death on the cross for our sin so that we can be saved and be made right with God, he says, after the redemptive work of Jesus, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, right? And most of us, you know, have some vague recollection of that at least, right? That after Jesus died, about 40 years later, the Romans came and destroyed the temple again. But he says, and the Jews had a role in it. The Romans, led by Titus, were involved in the destruction, but the transgression of the Jews, particularly their rejection of the Messiah, led to the Messiah's judgment on their temple and city, just as they were complicit when the first temple was destroyed in Daniel's own day. In other words, the Jews didn't tear down the temple in the Old Testament. The Babylonians did. But why did the Babylonians tear it down or burn it down? Because of Israel's sin. And and this Bible teacher is saying, the same thing is going to happen again, and that's what this vision is talking about. That the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., by the Romans, but it's going to be because the Jews rejected the Messiah. So that's one possible interpretation, right? But it's not the only one. Um, Because what gets difficult here is when it says the people of the prince who is to come, you can take that to mean the prince who's the Messiah who's to come, 
right? Which is the way this teacher is, is taking it, this Bible teacher is taking it. Or you could take that to refer to a different figure, even a, a Roman figure, right? And say this is about, this is emphasizing that the Romans, under this prince who is to come, are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we, it, it's hard even to agree on who it's talking about, who, who it's referring to here, all right? Um, and it, it's, it's going to be a, a desperate time, right? It's end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. However you interpret this, and however you interpret Jesus' warnings about um, the coming destruction of the temple, uh, it's, there's very clear parallels between those two. If you go read uh, Matthew 24, or the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, uh, where Jesus is talking about uh, the, this coming destruction and the abomination of desolation and so on. Even if he's talking about even further future events, it still seems to be borrowing language or ideas or whatever from what Daniel is hearing about here. So there's going to be war to the end. right? And then he says, verse 27, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and, shall, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. Okay. Can you handle a few more maybes? Okay. It's three, at least three possible interpretations of this part. Uh, three mentioned in the ESV study Bible, uh, and, and, uh, and they're just given to you briefly. Okay, one is that um, there is a break between the 62nd week, or excuse me, the, so seven weeks plus 62 weeks, that gets you to 69 weeks, and then there's a break between the 69th week and the 70th week. There's a gap in there, right? And so this view says there's a break between those weeks. And in between those is the period of time that we are in now. So Jesus comes and dies in the 69th week, but then the 70th week is still in the future even for us. And we're living between the 69th and 7th week. Right? But then some will say, I don't really see evidence for that in Daniel. It seems like they all go together. You have to sift it all, right? And weigh it all. Another view is that the he in verse 27 is a hostile figure who will destroy the temple, putting an end to sacrifices. Right? But another view says that uh, verse 27 is still referring to the work of Christ. Okay, So in, in verse 27, you even have disagreement about whether or not it's talking about Jesus or a hostile figure, perhaps even the Antichrist. It's that difficult to figure out, right? The, the interpretations vary that widely. Now, the reason why you can make a, a case for this talking about something Jesus is doing, right, is because if you follow from verse 25 to 26 to 27, right, the prince, the anointed one who's going to come in verse 25, seems to be the same anointed one in verse 26 who's cut off, and then if the people of the prince is talking about the Jews, if the prince is the Messiah and the people of the prince are the Jews who bring destruction on their own temple through their rejection of the Messiah, then in verse 27 when it says, and he shall make a strong covenant, then you're still talking about the Messiah. You're still talking about Jesus. And if it is talking about Jesus, then here's how they would explain that. 
Right? He's going to make a strong covenant with many for one week. That would be the new covenant. We talked about that last week when we talked about the Lord's Supper, that Jesus purchased the promises of the new covenant for us with His blood, right? forgiveness of sin and, and fellowship with God and so on. So that would be the covenant they're talking about there. And then it says, And for half of the week He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. That could be talking about either the fact that His death means the end of sacrifice and offering because there's no longer any need for any sacrifice for sin because he's done it once for all. Could also be referring to the impossibility of sacrifice and offering once the temple is destroyed because the Jews rejected the Messiah. Right? That's one possible way to explain that. But here's another way. On the other hand... Right? And I'm quoting another Bible teacher here. He says, uh, he says, this understanding, the one that I've just explained to you, I think is the one he's referring to, this understanding would depart from the picture we've uh, seen in Daniel 7, 8, and 10 through 12, a picture not of the Jews causing their temple to be destroyed with sacrifice brought to an end, but of a foreign attacker cutting off sacrifice and trampling the sanctuary. Now, here's what I want to say about that. The two people offering those two different interpretations are far better students of Daniel than I am. (laughs) So I'm not inclined to argue very strenuously with either one of them, even though I know only one of them can be right. I know one of them's got to be wrong. I know both of them know a whole lot more than I do about Daniel. Because both of them, if I'm not mistaken, have written either a commentary or a full-length book on Daniel. So, what do we do, right, when we come to a passage like this, right, where you're like, my pastor's been sitting in his office studying this stuff for two weeks, and he doesn't even know, and he's quoting really smart Bible scholars who write books about this stuff, and apparently they can't get together on what all this means. What do we even do with a text like this? What do we do with a passage like this? Well, one thing we don't want to do is be really dogmatic about our interpretation and assume that everybody who disagrees with the interpretation that makes the most sense to us must not be reading the Bible carefully or taking the Bible seriously. We don't want to do that. We want to have the humility to acknowledge wise, godly people spend months and years studying this stuff and still sometimes have to say we can't be sure. So that means it's definitely okay for us to say, I'm not sure. I don't know. But what we can be sure about and what we can take away from a passage like this is a few things. One, God answers prayer. Sometimes before we can even get through praying it, we have witnessed this. We've witnessed this in the last week or two on our uh, on our prayer text, right? We've seen there have been so many people we need to be praying for, and we have been seeing answers to prayer. Right? God hears us. God cares for us. Like Gabriel says to Daniel, "You are loved. You are a child of God. He hears your prayers. He cares what's burdening you. He cares about what's going on in your life and in the life of this church." He hears us. And He responds. So God hears and answers prayer, but sometimes in surprising ways. 
I don't think Daniel expected the answer that he got. I don't even know what he did with the answer that he got. We know in some cases he was disturbed by the visions that he saw. We're not told for sure about this one, but I wouldn't be surprised if the same was the case this time. Because not all of what he heard in there was good news. There was some really good news, right, about the coming of the Messiah. But there was also some bad news. Another destruction of the sanctuary in the city. That's heavy, right? So God answers prayer, but sometimes in surprising ways. And even if we, you know, can't figure out all the ins and outs of what all these different pieces are referring to and how the 490 years line up and when did they start and when did they end and and all those things, here's what we know for sure. God knows what's going to happen. And that's why he can tell Daniel, here's how it's going to be. Here's what's going to take place. And second, God not only knows what's going to happen, He is in control of what's going to happen. That's why verse 24 begins by saying 70 weeks are decreed, and verse 27 ends by saying until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Who makes the decrees? God makes the decrees. God says, here's how it's going to be. God says there's going to be 490 years or whatever the 77s refer to. God says this one who brings desolation, he's only going to be able to do that for a certain period of time and then I'm going to put a stop to it. I'm going to end it. So we might not be able to figure out everything that Daniel heard. I don't even know if Daniel understood all that he heard. But we can draw comfort and encouragement and strength from the fact that Daniel was hurt and from the basics of what Daniel was told, that God knows what's going on, that God is in control, and at the center of his plan is the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one who would be cut off. And why was he cut off? For the sins of his people, for our sin, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could participate in the coming of the kingdom of God. So that we could belong to that stone that turns into a mountain, that turns all the other empires of the world into dust, and is established not merely by power or might, but is established by righteousness and justice, and brings in peace forevermore. Let's pray.